that it's creature o'clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. And open the door to join us for the 48th meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm a sheep who just discovered she loves jumping on trampolines. Meredith. I'm retaining my youthful features like an axolotl mic. And I'm Molly now or later. And we meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. <laughs> to talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! So, saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom and Amalia. Here we are. Here we are. With a guest. With a guest. Special guest Molly, my friend from college, former roommate, preeminent fluter. Good morning. Yes, good morning. Oh, nice to have you in the station. (laughs) So nice to be here. So let's talk weeks and animals, I guess. Yeah, I didn't have much direct interaction with animals. There was a celebrity fly appearance at the vice presidential debate. Right. I knew. I mean, it seems to be the topic of the moment. But I guess we have to throw open the barn doors a little bit because we're this is going to sound like we're responding to this very late because it's going to come out like 2 weeks after the actual event. Yeah. We're recording early. It's a problem when the news cycle is shorter than the life cycle. <laughs> Kudos on that one, Mike. That was very funny. Thank you. But yeah, it, I loved all of the jokes that people immediately were using like, "Oh, flies are attracted to shit." And we know this because of the Animal Fan Club Mm -hmm. and my presentation not too long ago about Houseflies. It was pretty recent. And I just have to add, Meredith, that I've played that theater where the debate was happening. Oh, in Salt Lake? Mm Mm-hmm. And when I was there, no flies landed on me. Yep. That's because you're so fly. And you don't smell like rotting flesh. Yet. (laughs) But what was funny is that there, I think it was Amy Sedaris posted and then everybody reposted it. It was like this thing about flies in the Bible and how they represent like evil presences and everything. Meanwhile, we're in just like this. We just have our windows open because it's so nice. And like the flies, we have tons of them in the apartment right now. So they've been all over the place and they've been crawling all over the TV already. So when we saw that and I realized it was like moving with his head and that it wasn't just one of the resident flies that was already on our TV screen. It was interesting. But then I was like, oh, no, are we like evil spirits attracting these entities that indicate that we're evil spirits, according to the biblical interpretation of fly presence? I don't know. Yeah. That's not up to me to decide. Right. Well, you can just (laughs) pray about it, I guess. Yeah, I'll do that. But now I'm in Massachusetts. Molly has a cat named Maisie that we will talk about later. Ah, so jealous. I don't know if you should be. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, we'll hear all about this. How was your week in animals, Meredith? Um, Other than the flies in our house that um are a bit of a nuisance at times. Uh, I mean, nothing super crazy. I was in the park yesterday and I was excited to see. So we're kind of in migration season. So there's different birds around than I'm used to seeing, especially in big numbers. And there was a whole flock of grackles in the park. I'm not sure what a grackle looks like. They're kind of like black, but iridescent. And they've got these very severe faces. They look like little mini crows, but they're, I think, prettier than crows, actually. It's like a crow dressed up for an early 2000s winter formal. Oh, my gosh. Exactly. That's perfect. It's a perfect description. And then it just made me think, because when I'm at home in Cincinnati, like I see grackles a little more often than I do here. But I remember talking about them one day. My mom was just like, I don't like grackles. I was like, why? She's like, I don't know. I just don't like them. So that just makes me want to like them even more. (laughs) Mm. So I was just excited. I don't really see them that often in New York. You see a lot more as far as like little blackbirds. You see starlings all over the place, but not so many grackles. So there was a whole flock of them and they were like picking up acorns and like munching on them. It was really great. How was your week at animals, Molly? I am just astounded by the number of chipmunks that there are here in central Massachusetts where I grew up and there are chipmunks here commonly, but um, I got back to the U.S. in early September and immediately 
started noticing the insane number of chipmunks everywhere. They're running across their lot. I was in the backyard the other day, and at the same time, I counted six chipmunks. Oh. So many. That's a lot. I'll have to take you on a tour of the backyard, Mike, because there is a whole network of chipmunk holes dug in the yard that my dad is trying to battle and losing because every time he plugs up a hole, some other hole appears somewhere else in the yard. It's like whack-a-mole. It is definitely whack-a-monk. Whack-a-monk. Yep. (laughs) Whack-a-monk. Does your cat, like, lose it watching them outside the window? There are actually so many chipmunks. There's usually more than one out at the same time, and so she'll be out there, and there will be, like, a chipmunk to her left, a chipmunk to her right, and she doesn't know what to do. She can't make up her mind, so they cancel each other out. Oh, this is so cute. I love that little, like, chittering sound that cats will sometimes make when they see a rodent and be like I love it (sighs) well I guess on that note should we just get into it yeah I think we have a lot of really fun information today so let's just kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer all right ready okay taxona you taxona we taxona who taxona me kingdom and Amelia Obviously, duh. Phylum. Chordata. These spines are pretty impressive. Class. Mammalia. One of the most popular animals on this planet. Order. Carnivora. A mouse's worst nightmare. Family. Felidae. Pointy ears, retractable claws. Genus. Felis. Small and medium-sized cats. Species. Felis. Catus. Call them puss or call them jellical. It's the domestic cat. Whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. So I actually picked this animal specifically because I wanted to start getting into like spooky creatures for October. Ooh. And the first thing that pops into my mind, of course, because I'm such a cat freak, would be the black cat. And I've been a previous owner of a black cat. So I can actually speak anecdotally to the experience of living with a black cat. Also, I mean, we've never really done just like the domestic cat. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to think about and learn about. Without a doubt. So let's get into it. So actually, what I wanted to do a little bit differently with this presentation is I want to quickly go through some cat facts. I love cat facts. (laughs) Me too. Kind of spend the second half of the presentation going through some like specific black cat stuff, referring to like the superstitions and the various folklore surrounding black cats around the world because there's a lot. So yeah, it'll just be a little bit different than usual. So we'll go through some quick tax facts, which also by that nature are cat facts. So just keep that in mind. These are tax facts and cat facts. Oh my gosh, it's two for one. I know. We're so lucky today. So I mean, we don't really need to talk about animal. We don't need to talk about kingdom, phylum. Well, kingdom, animalia, phylum, chordata. Yeah, I mean, we got all that stuff. Class mammalia. Yeah, that's all fine. Okay, carnivora, I always find very interesting because like we obviously know a lot of different creatures eat other creatures. But carnivora. This is the order carnivora, right? Right. But I just love that it's so specific in that they're mammals that eat the flesh of other animals, not just mammals, but other animals. And so carnivore actually breaks down into just like two groups. And the groupings I thought were super interesting. I'd never really read this before. I'm sure you've referred to this though, Mike, in your previous presentations, but there's the caniforma and then the filiforma. And the groupings are so interesting to me. And I think it's kind of based on head shape, ultimately. Naturally. Well, let's start with filiforma. So this is cats, hyenas, and mongooses. So we are all, I guess, familiar with what those creatures look like. But then in Caniforma, you have dogs, bears, weasels, raccoons, and pinnipedia. Our fin-footed friends. Yeah. Isn't that a funny smattering of creatures? Dogs, bears, weasels, raccoons, and like walruses and sea lions and seals. Well, weasels and raccoons are the ones that surprise me in there. Because I think of dogs and bears and our Pinnipedia friends is having similar head shapes, that kind of like snout moment. Yeah. You know? Yeah, snout moments for sure. Yeah, but I guess the weasels kind of, I don't know. I'm trying to picture a weasel now. I would think weasels and mongooses would be together. It's pronounced Wiesel. It's a Newsies reference for you. You know, I've actually never seen Newsies. Ah, 
Well, in at least you capacity. know what you're doing for the rest of the day. I will not. Disney Plus. <laughs> I refuse. So anyway, that's Carnivora. I just thought that was really interesting. I Again, to consider dogs and weasels together was funny. And walruses. So Felidae refers to all cats. So the family of Felidae, cats wild and domestic. And whether they're wild or domestic, they're distinguished by diverse fur patterns. So you can think about, you know... Black leopards versus clouded leopards and cheetahs and all the interesting fur patterns that they have. They have slender muscular bodies, facial muscles that allow for a powerful bite. And of course, they're obligate carnivores, as we discussed. Which means they eat only meat. Unless you're like one of those house cats that also likes to chew on like grass and stuff, which is also possible. Still obligate carnivores, though. The genus of Felis refers to small to medium-sized cats. So this is going to include our domestic cat, but also the European wild cat, the jungle cat, the African wild cat, the black-footed cat, the sand cat, and the Chinese mountain cat, which is really fucking cute. If you've never looked up a picture of a Chinese mountain cat, look it up. They're like, they're just going to go, oh, because that's what I did. Okay. And then finally, the species of Felis catus, which is our domestic cat, a creature that for my entire life has been very near and dear to my heart. So this includes house cats, barn cats, feral cats, and I myself would add bodega cats. <laughs> so the history part is actually what's like super interesting is how they kind of came to gain this domestic, domesticated status and how they've been just like such a popular house pet for so long. So they were first domesticated around 7,500 BC. So a long, long time ago, obviously. Most famously in Egypt, which we probably all have seen that episode of Reading Rainbow where they like, they do the x-ray of the cat mummy. It's the same episode where they visit cats on Broadway. One of my favorite episodes. Obviously. They were super revered in Egypt and hence the reason why they would be mummified because you want to be able to take your beloved creatures with you into the afterlife, right? And you want them to have an afterlife and therefore you mummify them. Naturally. The cats that were domesticated by the Egyptians were most likely the African wild cat, which I mentioned as being one of those species in the genus, that small to medium cat genus of Felis. These cats would have been most likely attracted to the rodents that would have been attracted to these kind of growing civilizations in the Fertile Crescent. We talked about this actually with the housefly, this idea of creatures that kind of, the term is synanthropes or they're synanthropic in that they kind of thrive in these artificially created human environments. Say you've got like the Mesopotamians in the Fertile Crescent and they've got these huge grain stores to feed you know, the people of the villages. So naturally, mice would be attracted to that and choose to live there and thrive off of these um, essentially artificial food sources. So cats followed that. They followed these mice and they kind of proved themselves to be these great mousers and a huge convenience and a huge boon to the people that want to keep mice away from their grain stores. So thus, one of the best human-animal relationships was born. Aww. What I found interesting is that cat breeds as we know them, because like, I don't know, I am always, because I was like really into Cat Fancy Magazine when I was little, and I just like found cat breeds to be very interesting, and have always considered myself a little bit of an armchair expert on cat breeds. Cat breeds didn't really develop as we know them until the 19th century, when people start selectively choosing particular traits that they want to breed out in a particular cat, and you know, it's when humans really start being able to understand their power to manipulate <laughs> genetics. And I think it's more so in dogs than it is in cats where we've essentially genetically modified these dogs to the point that they don't have like the best quality of life. Mm. I won't name certain breeds, but certain breeds are like really prone to like hip dysplasia and brain aneurysms and all of these things that are just, I don't know, I think kind of ethically questionable. Sure. But whatever, those are dogs. We're talking about cats. This is a cat's presentation, not a dog's presentation. Right. Cats rule, dogs rule. But other than like the development of breeds, 
really the, there hasn't been much change in anatomy or behavior from a, like the cats that were domesticated all those many thousands of years ago in kind of the Near East. So would that mean that the Egyptian cats would have been equally as annoying as my cat, Maisie? <laughs> it's possible. It's very, very possible. What Wikipedia said, and I found this was interesting, is that cats were what they called pre-adapted for domestication. So beyond, I think, just their ability to hunt pests, they're small, so kind of easy to control. They're sociable, so they're nice to have around, except for maybe Maisie. Debatable. (laughs) They were intelligent. They were playful. And I would add they're cute. Like, why wouldn't you want a cute little cat around, especially if it's like helping you protect your grain stores? Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. So they were kind of like predisposed to um, become our pets or want to be our pets. Maybe. Maybe I'll give some more agency to the cats here. (laughs) Sure. There was an advantage to them. They provided a useful quality of pest management. Right. And it was food and shelter and, uh, I guess, companionship. They're just using us for mice. Yeah. Uh, And who doesn't want to be in a relationship where you're just used? I mean, you get a few, you get to cuddle with a little floofer, and then you get bit, and maybe you don't have as many mice. Great relationship. It seems even to me. I'll take it. Yeah. I feel like the cat's winning. Always. (laughs) But just to talk about some of their, you know, famous qualities real quick. So we know they've got this excellent night vision. So they can see with essentially one-sixth of the light that humans need to adequately see clearly. They also have excellent hearing, which is where we kind of see their little pointy ears kind of swivel around to better locate sounds. They, too exercise this Flemings response that we've talked about. With cats, they don't necessarily, house cats, I should say, they don't necessarily like bare their teeth like lions or like a tapir would. Sometimes if you see a cat like intensely smelling something, like being really interested in a particular smell and then they look up at you and their mouths are kind of like. Yeah, like kind of half open. Yeah, that's their, that's their Fleming. <laughs> I'm not using right. that word right, but... And that's the one where you kind of like... It's like almost as if you're opening your sinus cavities so that you can smell more things, essentially, is our reduced version of what that is. Yeah. There's something in the back of their throat, like in the sinus process called like... I think it's called a Jacobson's organ. And essentially what they're doing is they're sucking in air that then moves over that Jacobson's organ. That's like another um, process for smell. And in their case, like a much more advanced process of smell than what we as humans can do. They are active day and night, but they do sleep up to 16 hours a day, which I really kind of envy them for. I've always been really envious of the relaxed house cat lifestyle. I remember there would be times in high school when I was just like so overworked and overstressed and I would just look at my cat with like such contempt. Sure. Because all I wanted to do was just lay around and I just couldn't. Molly, do you ever look at your cat with contempt? (laughs) Yes, I do. But not because she sleeps a lot. It would be the opposite. Because why aren't you sleeping, Maisie? Why (laughs) did you wake me up at 5 a.m. again today? Just for 20 minutes of howling and craziness. (laughs) I woke up. She went back to sleep. But I could not. Oh, that's not fair. Yeah, I wouldn't be very happy about that either. Oh, and as far as like their vocalization, so there's like meows, howls. I mentioned earlier that little like (laughs) chittering thing that they do, purrs, obviously. So actually a lot of those vocalizations they don't necessarily use. Like a feral cat in the wild wouldn't necessarily be meowing unless they were in some sort of pain. But generally, the only time you hear them vocalize is like (laughs) during cat sex, as we'll talk about, or when they're fighting, when, say, two males are fighting over territory or over a female in heat. So a lot of the vocalizations are um, used more for communication of their wants and needs with humans, which I always found that very interesting. Okay, so since I brought it up, let's talk cat sex. Frisky feline cat sex. Because this is, like, actually very interesting, and I haven't I'm not saying that there aren't other creatures that exhibit this kind of thing, but I I hear about it mostly with cats, and it's just fascinating to me. So they're polyesterous, which means they go through several cycles of what's called being in heat. 
where they are essentially ready to reproduce. Their bodies are like primed for it. And if you've ever seen a cat in heat, it looks awful. And it goes on for days and they just look uncomfortable and they kind of like moan in pain. And so during this point, they're excreting all these pheromones that like if they're out in the wild in a feral situation, male cats would pick up on that and kind of flock to her and fight over her. The male that kind of wins out will essentially mount her and bite the scruff on her neck in this mounting position. And then, oh gosh, this makes me shudder. But she essentially howls when the man pulls out because the male cat penis is like spined. So when he pulls out, it like scrapes the inside of her vagina. And that scraping is what essentially induces ovulation. So for her to release the soon to be hopefully kitten eggs that will then be fertilized. So they're not ovulating when they're in heat, but they're ready to be. They're ready to be induced to ovulation when they're in heat. So it's not like women in their cycle that are when they have the period, it's because of the ovulation. That's interesting. So the male delivers his love packet. His nuptial gift. His nuptial (laughs) gift. Well, it's not technically a nuptial gift. No, 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 no. I just wanted to use that phrase. It is very fun. But he delivers his seed. Yes. But she has not started ovulating when the seed is delivered. Right. And the act of the scraping is what induces ovulation. Yes. But also that scraping can um, remove any semen that might have been in there from a previous mating um, moment. And this gets me to this uh, thing about cats and that they're, or female cats, they're called, they're what's called super fecund. Is that how you say that? Fecund. Yeah. Fecund. Fecundity. Yeah. Remember, fecundity. It's the, uh, <laughs> the Dave Foley. It's from our favorite Dave Foley. I am a man who has a positive attitude towards yes. menstruation. Yeah. <laughs> best. Fecundity. One of the best kids in the hall sketches ever. So cats are super fecund, meaning that a cat can mate with more than one male cat, tom cat, um, while in heat. So what this means is that a lot of men can get in there and it's in that act of kind of scraping that not only induces ovulation, but it can remove semen that might already be in there working its magic. Yeah. So this can result when female cats deliver a litter of kittens. Those kittens could be representative of more than one cat daddy. Oh, so it is possible for them to have different fathers in the same litter. Yes. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. I've always found that so bizarre. And actually, like the way I don't know anything about this stuff, but it's super interesting the way that cat genes work as far as how genes are expressed via coat colors and eye color and all of these things. And especially when you have more than one dad involved, like the litters of kittens can be such a genetic party (laughs) in terms of how they end up looking, really. Uh Uh-huh. And like what's recessive and what isn't and all of these things. And like calico cats are always female for one reason or another. Like it's just very, very interesting stuff. That's a good line of inquiry. It sure like is. Cat patterns and cat relationships. Yeah. Get your punnet squares going, everybody. <laughs> wow. <laughs> good callback. Thank you. Call back to ninth grade biology. For real. So after all of that, now I think we can get more into like the fun Halloween-y because it is October kind of black cats and superstitions and all that fun stuff. Actually, we often because we live in America and we've got this like our, you know, this Puritan history, we often think about black cats as in a negative light because it's supposed to be like, ooh, a black cat crosses your path. That's that's a negative thing. You don't want to see that. That means bad luck. I think a lot of that stems from this association that we have from like the 16th century where black cats were viewed as satanic when really I think at that time they were just they were just scraping the bottom of the barrel of Satan references like anything meant Satan back then. Sure. You know, like they were so paranoid in their religion that they were just always looking to identify those things that were out to get them. Like the tritone. Just like the tritone. But I would say that was that was much earlier even than black cats. 
black cat superstition. Proto-black cat superstition, if you will. Right, but definitely in the same vein. So, yeah, they would be identified as, like, these witches familiars. So, like, essentially helpers to witches who were helpers to the devil under, you know, these kind of misguided, I think, interpretations of 16th century pilgrims and Puritans. And so for that reason, we have like a lot of persecution of black cats and really cats in general. I was reading about some, especially in France and Belgium, they had these like midsummer burnings or they would just burn cats en masse. Gross. Like in the town square and like gleefully clap and scream with delight as these cats were burning to death. Just awful. Awful. I hate to even say it out loud here. In terms of kind of giving equal time to the good things people have associated with black cats, because I think there's just as many, if not more, black cat good luck symbols out there, especially in like the British Isles, Scotland, Ireland, Britain. Black cats are often given as wedding gifts because they're supposed to be a signal of prosperity. If a um, black cat shows up at your home, At a new home, if it arrives at a new home, it means prosperity for that new home. There is actually a fairy creature um, in Scottish folklore called the Cat Sith, and it takes the form of a black cat with like a white thing on its chest. There's a lot of associations with black cats and luck in boating or in on ships. So like say your ship is docked at the harbor and you're supposed to embark on a long journey and a black cat jumps on board. And if it stays with you on your journey, that's supposed to be a good thing. That's good luck. But if it jumps on board and then jumps back off, then that means you're like doomed for shipwreck. Huh. Yeah. Super interesting. That's interesting. It's the black cat crossing your path as bad, but a black cat joining you on your journey is good. Right. On a ship journey. But also too, it's like, I was coming across these things where depending on the culture from which the superstitions originating, I forget which one went with what, but it was like in some cultures, if the black cat's walking toward you, it's good luck. If it's walking away from you, it's bad luck and vice versa. And also if it's crossing from left to right, it means something different than if it's crossing from right to left. And like, of course, all these things would swap depending on the source or depending on the country that you're talking about. But I think it's just, again, just like a interesting reminder of the mutability of superstitions and symbols from culture to culture. There's a lot of cat fact factors. Amen, sister. Me, ow. Me, wow. Me, wow. So just quickly to wrap this up, August 17th is Black Cat Appreciation Day because For whatever reason, maybe it's because they're, I don't know, less exciting in terms of their fur patterns or because of this, um, the associations of these superstitions, but black cats have the lowest adoption rates, which is such a bummer because my experience of black cats has generally been that they're like the goof maloofs of the cat world. I know cats can be all kinds of crazy in any form, in any color, But the black cats I've experienced have tended to be a little bit more rambunctious, a little bit more silly, a little bit more demanding and difficult at times. But they're like so full of personality. Like when we adopted our black cat, Midnight, we picked her because she was like the nutsiest one in the cage. Like she was like crawling all over the place, like crawling up the the cage door itself. Like all the other cats were sleeping and she was just like literally bouncing off the walls. And that's why we picked her. And she was a crazy cat. And I've met a lot of other completely bonkers black cats as well. So if you want a cat that's like full of personality and vim, pick a black cat. Alleluia. Coming up to Halloween, I know it is standard that um, a lot of, say, like humane societies and adoption centers won't adopt out black cats on and around Halloween because of a fear of like them being used in satanic rituals. And I don't know if there's much evidence to support that, but I know that that is a practice adopted by certain humane societies. Happy Halloween, all you black cats. Black cat, nine lives short, days long nights, living on the edge, not afraid to die. Yeah! Heartbeat. (laughs) Real strong, but not for long. Better watch your step or you're going to die. This is Janet Jackson. That was my very first tape 
Rhythm Nation. Yes. Oh, that's such a good one. Oh, my first tape was Paula Abdul. Also a cat reference because she and DJ Scat Cat in um, the song Opposites Attract, the video. Uh, What is it? Two steps forward. Two steps forward. Wait. One step forward. Two steps back. Back. We go together together because opposites attract. And you know. Yeah. All right. Well. Well, on that note, is it time for a break? Well, unless you have any questions, any cat queries, but it doesn't seem like it. <laughs> I'm not sure I do. We might get to more cat info later. So. Okay. I'm, I'm here for that. Break time. Don't believe the hype. The human campaign against bold pig beauty stops right here. Turn that frown into a beautiful sow smile with Brand Clubby's new line of Piggy Pouts, luxurious lipstick for pigs. With 18 fantastic shades such as Pigsty Puce, Mudblood Red, Suey Day Sunrise, Unkosher Kiss, Hogwash Gloss, Squeal and Teal for you punk pigs, Cloven Hoof Crimson, Swine Time Lime, and our original classic Pig Pink. So go ahead. And put some lipstick on your piggy pout. And enjoy being the prettiest porker in the pen. And if you log into the Brand Clubby web portal and order two piggy pouts, luxurious lipstick for pigs within the next five minutes, you get a free classic pig pink lipstick for free. Just use the code PRETTYPIG at checkout. Pets, I wish you had also 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 met also I wish you had also met all right we're back for another super exciting edition of pets I wish you had also met and it kind of dovetails on my kitty cat presentation yeah it's perfect we go right from talking about cats the species to talking about an individual cat named Maisie Maisie crazy lazy Maisie. Gosh. Tell us everything. Well, Maisie is my girl. She's a tortoise shell, which is not a breed of cat. It's just the coloring. And like calicos, they are like 99.999% female. Yes. Um, She is extremely smart Mm -hmm. and sassy. (laughs) She's eight years old. I have been with her for seven of those years. She chose me at the shelter. Oh. We recently got back from Ireland where she had free reign. There were no screens in the windows and no predators in the valley. There are no predators down in the valley where we live. <laughs> so she was out all the time gloriously frolicking in the rain and now we are back in Massachusetts where there are screens and coyotes and foxes and I'm telling you this because yeah. We're really we're really struggling right now with uh, Maisie is feeling trapped and she's feeling aggressive and she's being incredibly annoying even though I love her so much sometimes I also want to kick her in the face which I'll never do (laughs) just seeing a very bad cat and waking me up at five in the morning so Maisie she's my girl she sounds lovely so did you go to a shelter with the intent you wanted to get a cat companion I did but I asked to see the white male cat in the cage next to her who was sleeping and they went to open his cage and then she kind of sat up and looked at me and she was like she had this look where she was just like are you kidding me she's like I'm right here and she's like and they're like well this cat's awake do you want to see her and I was like sure and they just blooped her on my lap and it's the only time that she's ever completely just like drizzled herself on me and not moved and she purred and I was like okay done that's it oh she knew what it took before Ireland she and I went on catwalks so she walks on a harness and leash really that's that's impressive I've tried I've tried so many times yeah and it would always just result in them doing like they would like do that belly walk like really close to the ground I don't know why putting a harness on a cat like automatically like makes them dip (laughs) Mm -hmm. but yeah I've never been remotely successful in doing that so that's super impressive I took Maisie on a walk at one point in Kansas City when Molly lived there and it was definitely an experience it was different than a dog walk Mm -hmm. different than I expected it would be you know, we found new routes, new paths. 
there was lots of like jumping up on barriers. Yes. So I had to like climb over things. Mm. Cats also, the way that they approach space is fascinating. Mm-hmm. What I've learned, they they like perimeters. So like if you have a big open field, the cat is not likely to, to go straight into the middle of the field mm-hmm. unless they're very, very comfortable or chasing a chipmunk. <laughs> but they like perimeters. So uh, they she sometimes gets stuck. It's like she'll get stuck in the we'll be going down a sidewalk and she doesn't really want to go down the sidewalk, but it's almost like she gets in this trance of the straight line Yeah, and she can't stop. And she'll get like very, she'll keep walking and be like agitated and like hissing at me as she's walking. It's like very bizarre. It's like she can't break herself out of the spell of just walking in the straight line. Exactly. That's so funny. At what point in life did you start taking her out on walks? Was it like right away or did you work up to it? It was about a year after having her, because we went from living in a nice house and then I went into a bigger house and then I moved into a small apartment and she started biting the shit out of me. I had crazy like eight inch long cut scratches on both of my forearms. Oh man. And at the time I was teaching yoga, so I would have to bandage my forearms up. And after one class, I had a student come up to me and ask like, are you okay? And I was like, I am not hurting myself. This is my cat. But it, I was just like, this is extreme. This yeah. is like not, this is too much for coming from my cat. I, yeah, I started walking her outside and it was not super easy, but she also just needed to get out. Yeah. And I take her still now. I take her for like two walks a day. She's never satisfied. I, <laughs> I don't know. Well, but she had this sort of footloose and fancy free life in Ireland mm-hmm. before her return to Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a big adjustment period for her. Oh, Maisie. Do we get to see her at all? She's not allowed in the recording studio. I see. Okay. Understand. Understandable. Get you a picture. Yeah. Yeah. We'll send a picture that we can post on the Instagram. Yes. Absolutely. I think Maisie sounds awesome, though I totally understand the the struggle that you're experiencing with her right now. But. I mean, cats are the best and they're the worst. Yeah, it's true. They're the cutest and they're the dumbest at the same time. I love cats so much. Yes. Cats, 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 cats. <laughs> We're generally pro-cats. Meredith is more of a cat person than I am based on my allergies, mm. which I regret. Although I also simultaneously appreciate because were I not laden with these allergies, I would likely have about six cats by now. <laughs> really? You think so? I think I would have at least one without a doubt. Oh, I love that, Mike. I had no idea. I was just, I never really knew that about you. I just thought you were like more of a dog. Well, I am, but I'm also more of a city person. Right. So those two things are at odds with one another. Yeah. Well, gosh darn it. Learn something new every day. On that note, take a break. Yeah, let's do it. Pets I wish you had also met. 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 Pets I wish you had met. Also met. Yes. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who? Texana me. Kingdom. And Amelia, this isn't a chemistry podcast. Philo. Arthropoda, we are leaving our spines behind. Insecta, hexapods. Order. Hymenopatera, sawflies, wasps, bees, and ants. Family. For Mikey Day, when the ants are marching. Genus. Atta, a genus of New World's ants. Species. Civilotus, a species of leafcutter ants. They've been farming for 60 million years. Get excited, Meredith. We're talking leafcutter ants. I love leafcutter ants. I also love leafcutter ants. They are so... So fascinating. I cannot wait. So we're just going to hit you with some tax facts, and then I'm going to really turn it over to Molly. This is really her presentation. Okay. So kingdom animalia, we know that. Phylum arthropod, our crustaceans, our insects, our myriapods, etc. Class insecta, hexapods, the largest arthropod group. Order, Hymenoptera, sawflies, wasps, bees, and ants. There's over 150,000 living species, over 2,000 extinct ones that we know about. Females typically have an ovipositor, which has sometimes been adapted into a stinger. They develop through holometabolism, which is a complete metamorphosis. So they are a worm-like larval. There's an inactive pupil stage and then the mature final form. Family, for Mikey Day, they are eusocial insects. 
12,500 species have been classified of an estimated 22,000 species. They have elbowed antenna, their distinctive node-like structure that forms their slender waists. They form colonies. They've colonized almost every landmass on Earth. The only places lacking indigenous ants are few remote inhospitable islands and Antarctica. How ironic. It's in the name, but not Uh on the (laughs) landmass. They hashtag thrive and they may form in their area. They may form 15 to 25% of the terrestrial animal biomass. Wait, can you just say that one more time? Let it sink in. Yeah. In the area where they are, they may form 15 to 25% of the terrestrial animal biomass. Crazy. It's insane. So if you take all the animals in an area and get them all on a scale. Good luck. 15 to 25% of the total mass of the animals is going to be just ants. That's a giant percentage. (laughs) It sure is. I have a feeling there's got to be a lot of that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, between... Family and genus, we have the tribe, a teeny, and then a subtribe, a teena. And this subtribe is the fungus growing ants. More on that later. Ooh. The genus is Atta, relatively large, rusty brown in color. They have spiny bodies and long legs. And it's a genus of leafcutter ants. There's a two genuses of leafcutter ants. And then the species, Cephalotus, is Noteworthy, it's one of the earliest formally classified ants. Carl Linnaeus himself in 1758 described it in the 10th edition of Systema Natura, along with 16 other species in the genus Formica. That was the original genus, Formica cephalotis. And then Danish zoologist Johann Christian Fabricus in 1804 placed this creature in the genus Atta. I love the formica because I've always heard of formica associated with like countertops. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also associated with ants. Yeah, it turns out. Which is something. I wonder which one came first. <laughs> <laughs> the countertops or the ants? Yeah. That age old question. So that's the tax facts. So I just wanted to do that because taxonomy's wackadoo. Especially with insects, it turns out. Oh, my God. It's completely ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I just want to say, like, in the family, there's 12,500 species. Like, again, that's bonkers. We've had creatures where it's like bison, bison, bison. The family, the genus, and the species is all the same, you know. And this is remarkable. So I would now like to pass the animal conch over to (laughs) Molly and allow... Grant her permission because I'm a man and women can't speak unless men grant them permission. So I would like to grant her permission to speak on the leafcutter ant. Woohoo! Well, we will move from patriarchy straight into matriarchy then. Yes! <laughs> leafcutter ants. So leafcutter ants are some of the world's earliest farmers. So humans have been farming for 12,000 years. Wow, wow. But ants have been farming for between 50 and 60 million years. Holy shit! And farming changed everything for humans when we domesticated plants and animals. That meant that we could build up a food surplus Mm -hmm. and for the first time be able to think about other things other than basic survival. Right. And we shifted from a nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyle into settlements, into villages, into cities, into complex civilizations. So in the same way, by growing their own food, farming has allowed leafcutter ants to develop massive underground colonies and highly complex societies, some of the most complex societies on the planet. This is something that only a handful of other animals have ever done. I can tell you what they are. Yes. Please. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So we have the damselfish, Mm. which cultivates algae. Okay. We have the yeti crab, (laughs) which cultivates a bacteria. Termites also grow and eat fungus. Weevils 
grow and eat fungus? I love weevils. <laughs> weevils are so cool. <laughs> and another kind of black garden ants, which are the only other species other than humans to herd another being um, or bug, which are aphids. That's insane. I've never thought about this as even like a possibility. Fascinating. This idea of other creatures farming, mm. like creating their own food surplus. That's so nuts. And maintaining livestock too. That's, right? Yeah, lives. Thank you. That's, that's what I was looking for. bonkers. <laughs> oh my gosh. So these colonies of leafcutter ants can grow to between five and 10 million workers. And their jobs have become very specialized. And they have some of the most complex division of labor within the ant families. They have tiny worker ants, large worker ants, <laughs> half-inch giant scary soldier ants, minims, and a queen. So the worker ants, which make up the bulk of the colony, are the ants that you would see carrying pieces of yes. leaf and marching in a line back and forth. Probably seen images of that. The particular species you're talking about, are these, I've always associated them with like rainforest life. Is this? Yes. There are leafcutter ants all over. They're definitely popular. I mean, a lot of the footage that I was watching online is from the rainforest. Okay. It would be very common, but they exist everywhere except for Antarctica right, and right, right, right. remote islands. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they're walking around carrying these leaves. Now, the worker ants have very strong, sharp mandibles to cut through the leaves mm -hmm. and their mandibles are serrated like a steak knife. <laughs> and these pieces of leaf that they cut off uh, would be the equivalent of a human carrying around 600 pounds with our teeth. <gasps> Holy shit. Now, this next part is very important. ant. <laughs> the ants can't actually eat the leaves. They can't. They can't. <laughs> Yeah, we're getting to go in here now. <laughs> they, can, they can drink the sap a little bit for energy, but they can't digest the plant matter. So what are they doing with these leaves? They clean the leaf, they crush it, they munch it up and make a pulp, and then they fertilize it with their own feces <laughs> before adding it to the top of their garden where they then spread spores on the ball of mashed up leaves. And these spores grow the fungus. And that is what the answer after is fungus. Oh, okay. I mean, if you're looking for fun, look no further than fun <laughs> Gus. Gosh. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this fungus becomes their food and also their living space. Wow. They feed it to their young, and they grow these gardens that are these intricate structures, these fungal masses, which can be grown for a decade or more. And the fungal masses are filled with all of the ant tenants. <laughs> and so they build these symbiotic cities where the ants rely on the fungus, and the fungus relies on the ants. So... Scientists actually think that the fungus might have evolved to attract the ants first mm. so that the ants could disperse its spores and provide nutrients in return. And eventually, the ants made the transition to cultivating the fungus. Wow. That is fascinating. Yeah. The symbiosis was why I was drawn to reading about ants. I was on a real ant kick in January. January? No. So there are multiple layers of the symbiotic relationships. Another layer is this bacteria that the leaf cutters carry around on their bodies. So they carry around the symbiotic bacteria that produces antibiotics. It's true. <laughs> which they then rub onto the fungus to protect it against fungal parasites. This bacteria is being studied for human use to help create, hopefully, better drugs. We all need those. And antibodies. <laughs> These ants are also being studied. They've been able to break down plant fiber. 
cellulose. And scientists are studying how they do this, hoping that we'll be able to develop renewable biofuels from trees and other plants so that we can directly power our vehicles, et cetera, with wow. renewable fuels. Okay. A mature leafcutter colony can cut and gather hundreds and thousands of leaf fragments. They can actually take out an entire tree Whoa. in a matter of hours. Like overnight, they can take all of the best leaves off of a completely mature Does tree. that hurt the tree? Yes. It's not good for the tree. <laughs> when an individual worker ant finds a suitable leaf, it can recruit its other nestmates by sending a vibrational signal. So as it's munching on the leaf, it rapidly moves its abdomen up and down, <laughs> basically twerks on the leaf. Yeah. <laughs> and this sends the vibrations through its jaw into the leaf and then down the stem to the nearby ants, signaling them that this is a good leaf. Let's chomp her up and bring her back home. Wow. The act of making sound in the, in the way of moving the abdomen back and forth is called stridulation. So ants have a stridulatory organ, which is a series of microscopic grooves producing chirps at a frequency of approximately one kilohertz. Cool. So as the worker ant is cutting, the chirps also vibrate the mandible as it cuts. And by vibrating the mandible and simultaneously pulling up on the underside of the leaf with its front foot, the ant stiffens the leaf so it can make a smooth cut easily. The ants make semicircular cuts by anchoring their legs on the edges and surfaces of the leaf, and then they rotate themselves in a circular motion as they're cutting. <laughs> to cut through the leaf, Cute. they use one part of their mandible to pierce the top of the leaf, and then they drag the bottom part of the mandible along. So it's like a pierce, drag, pierce, drag. Oh. Either side of the mandible can function in both roles. And their mandible is made up of giant muscles that make up 50% of the weight of the ant's head and 25% of its total body mass. Wow. Yeah. So a quarter of them is mouth, jaw. Yeah. It's mandible muscle. <laughs> Which I have to say, like, when you look at the ant head and they kind of have these, like, two things and they look like maybe their eye structures mm. on their heads, uh -huh. they're actually mandible muscles. Yeah. All right, so there, let's talk about the other types of ants within the colony. So the other ants have roles of protecting the colony and, of course, the queen, which we'll get to last in reproducing the colony. So minims are the smallest of the ants. Their job is to protect the worker ants. Because when the worker ants are walking back and forth, going out to collect leaves and then bringing the leaves back, they are at constant risk of attack. Mm -hmm. There is the species of fly called the forid fly, which is the parasite. And this fly, if it lands successfully on a worker ant, will lay its eggs into the crevices of the worker ant's head. Ugh. And as uh -huh. the larvae hatch, they eat the ant alive from the inside out. So the minim rides on the back of a worker ant or on the leaf and it wards off these forward flies. Be like, boo, get out of here, boo. Oh. Protects the worker ants. Soldier ants are the largest of the ant worker members. Um, and again, the colony is always at risk of being attacked. So these ants are about a half inch long, a little bit bigger. They have super strong mandibles that can cut through human skin. And there's a really gross video online. It, it's not like a very quick bite. It's not like a sting. But there's somebody who's holding this soldier ant, and it's just slowly kind of like carving into its skin until it... it and the guy's he's like, yeah, well, it did hurt, but it was worth it. So no. you could watch that. It's about 30 seconds. It's really gross. <laughs> and that's what they do when invaders arrive. They use their mandible and they just chomp them. They often will get invaded by other types of ants. And these soldier ants, they're actually told by the smaller ants. The smaller ants will run up to them and they have this really cute antenna conversation. <laughs> and 
then the soldier ants are off and they just one by one, they take out all of the invaders and chomp them in half. It's a carnal field. <laughs> and just to keep in mind, which we haven't talked about this yet, but that all of the workers, all of the minims, all of the soldier ants are females. And I think this is oh. one time where we can really say that these female soldiers are quite militant. Go girls. The soldier ants also have the job of clearing and maintaining the trails, the foraging trails of debris and carrying big items back to the nest. Dang. We also have the danger of Escavapus, which is a harmful fungus that has the potential to devastate an ant garden. This is a really common fungus. It shows up um, in one study in 60% of mm. fungal gardens. Um, but the leafcutter ants have adapted to control these infections by cleaning out the individual fungal spores. They groom them. They remove infected pieces of fungus, and then they throw it in a waste dump, huh. which is described as weeding, as you would do in your own garden. And this waste is carried to the ant dump by workers who are older and more dispensable than the younger ants who are healthier and who can continue to work in the fungal garden. Wow. So they relegate the seniors to like waste removal. Yes. <laughs> and our last member of our ant adventure is, of course, our queen. So in each colony of leafcutter ants, there's only one queen. And she is the only one in the nest who's able to reproduce. In her lifetime, she may produce between 150 to 200 million offspring. Whoa! And there may be... Millions of workers of different shapes and sizes, they're all female and they're all infertile. So this means that all of the workers in any ant colony are sisters and that every time you are squishing ants in your kitchen, you're killing women. Oh. But I do it too. They can't be inside. The queen does lay <laughs> some eggs that hatch into other queens and into males, but these ants fly off to mate and the females eventually lose their wings and would dig a chamber of their own in an attempt to start their own colony. If they succeed, the queen spends the rest of her life laying eggs underground and being tended to by workers. What is the lifespan of a queen? I don't know. I didn't write it down. I was wondering like how long it takes to lay millions and millions and millions of baby ants. I think of that family that was on like TLC like 10 Ugh. years ago, whatever, the Duggars with all those kids. 19 kids and counting. Yeah. They have nothing on the leafcutter ants. Take that, Pentecostals. Yeah, take that quiverful movement. Quiverfuls. Yeah, so a queen could live 10 years or longer. Wow. For, like You just don't think about insects living that long. You know, like Mike, you made that joke about the short lifespan of the housefly, which is like two weeks. Right. Over 10 years. That's insane. It's an antique. <laughs> Don't let the queen hear you say that. That's what I have for leafcutter ants. And they just, they make me think about climate change and global warming hmm. and how humans, we, we could be taken out. But I think that ants are going to long, mm -hmm. are going to outlast us without a doubt. And also, the, the multiple layers of the symbiosis of the, the ants cultivating fungus, the bacteria protecting it from other fungus, yeah. the minims fighting off forward flies. I mean, there's so many layers of complexity, which absolutely reflects the way that the world is, the way that nature is, mm -hmm. and how it is so important to not think that we can, you know, just kind of clear cut areas of land and then like replant it like suddenly oh that's going to have fulfilled all of the complexity that's developed over time right it's impossible to do that a really good point um, wow my gosh my mind is blown by this so it's like one of those things i i've seen the visual of them i think it's a very common um visual associated with like the rainforest and stuff but and it's like oh cool they're carrying leaves mm. do, do do but as you've exposed these layers upon layers of complexity within these societies. It's just so fascinating. Hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, should we move on? I'm starting to feel a little antsy. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good time for a break. Yeah. 
Oof, my mandibles sure are tired after a long day chomping leaves. Mine too. Chomping leaves all day has left my mandibles all tuckered out. (laughs) You two clearly have not heard about mandible massage. The new Ant Mandible Restorative Massage System by Brand Clubby. Clearly not. Tell us more. My mandible massage mate has extensive training in antiatomy and is capable of quickly releasing any tension that I've developed in my long day of cutting leaves. I have long days of cutting leaves all the time. That tension is real. Mandible massage mates are trained in all styles of elegant massage. Swedish deep tissue? Yes. Hot stone? Mm-hmm. Stridulatory organ massage? Avi. She Antsu? Da-da! Amazing! How do I find out more? Log on to the Brand Clubby web portal or download the new Brand Clubby app and the special location system will coordinate with the massage mates nearest your fungal mass and you'll have an appointment scheduled within the hour. Grand Clubby truly thinks of everything. As always. Use code FIRSTFARMERS15 to save 15% at checkout. And be sure to ask your mate about a frequent fungus friend punch card. After 10 massages, the 11th is free. Brand Clubby will be our salvation. on the menu in the feed bag today. Oats. <laughs> I nailed it. I smell oats too. I smell- I would say Molly, you're probably more of an expert in grains than I am. Mm. So I trust your nose. I love a good grain. Well, Jack from Sleepy Hollow wants to know If you could go as any animal for socially distant Halloween this year, what would you go as? I mean, I think that right now I'm continue to be going through a shrimp phase. I think that I would go as some sort of shrimp. I don't think it would be the skeleton shrimp. I think it would be more like a true shrimp, caridier or whatever they are. And uh, probably the brown ones, the brown shrimp. That's my answer. Brown shrimp. Okay. The pousse. <laughs> the puce shrimp. The pousse shrimp, yes. <laughs> we should get serious about our costumes this year because I, I was going to say a lobster. That would be such a fun costume. It could be friends. Crustacean crew. Yeah. Crew crustacean. Crusty crew. Crew station. <laughs> Crusty crew. So I actually had, I try to do an animal every year, um, or at least for the past two years I have. So I was a pigeon two years ago. And then last year I was a flying squirrel. I had literally planned on being a slutty pangolin this year. I remember the slutty (laughs) pangolin idea. (laughs) And it was going to involve a lot of felt. (laughs) But now I just don't, you know, it, it takes a lot of work and a lot of planning and I would need to get started now. But I was like literally in by no means going to any Halloween parties. Neither should anybody else be. So I I might put it on hold for next year. But even next yeah. year, Halloween might be out. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I think maybe I'm hopeful that by next year we'll be able to have Halloween again. They just closed Broadway until March. May. May? Oh, even better. Even better. I know. I Yeah. I saw that right before we started recording myself. Yeah. So here's hoping that someday soon we can be brown crabs, lobsters, and slutty pangolins. Brown shrimp. Brown shrimp. Oh, Mike, I'm sorry. You know what? It's because that picture of you with the crab hat on. With the crab hat. It's so seared into my amygdala. Yeah, that's made of felt. It sure is. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. A fish position. Molly from Massachusetts would like to know, why is my cat such a mass hole? Oh, you guys help. That's me. I'm Wait, Molly from you? Massachusetts. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, you don't normally have the question askers here in the in the flesh. I need your help, Animal, animal Fan Club. <laughs> I need your help. I was going to say Animal Club Podcast, that's not what it's called. I think that we all know the answer to this and that Maisie is just really upset to have left Ireland and 
is not adjusting to this COVID quarantine quite as deftly as maybe we would hope. But I also think it's important to manage our expectations yeah. of our kitty friends. I mean, a lot of the angst I think we've all been feeling, she's feeling as well. I mean, I don't know who sings that song, but it's like, don't hem me in. She's mm. feeling that hard, I think, as we all have, especially in the earlier days of the quarantine. I believe it's pronounced angst. Excuse me. Angst. Thank you for reminding me of the macro. We, we are all alone and together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of us have louder cats than <laughs> others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And some of us wish we had cats and we don't. So, you know, I guess you got to take the good with the bad. Sometimes we're all transitioning into different lifestyles. And that's just, we're in a period of transition. And that's okay. And Mike, you can borrow Maisie anytime. I'll take her. In fact, <laughs> please, please take her back to the city. I'll take her. <laughs> Mike, bring her. Okay. Well, apparently I'm transporting cats now. <laughs> Across state lines. What a world. <laughs> well, ding, 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 ding. ding. Mindy from Canton asks, if you had a pet to peer, what would its name be? Oh, what would its name be? I would name it Peanut. I would go for a more alliterative name. Tamar the Tapir. Or maybe Tammy the Tapir. You know, I had Tammy cross my mind as well. I think Tammy is a great name for like pretty much any animal. But Tammy the Tapir, it's pretty adorable. What about you, Molly? Jeez. Do you know what Tapirs look like? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, naming for me is like, I can't really, they like come to me in dreams. So I'd have to sleep on this. So in the meantime, I will call it Tic Tac. Tic Tac. I like that though. That's good. Tic Tac. All right. How cute. So we have Tic Tac. We have Tammy. And what was yours again? Peanut. Peanut. A fish possession. Ding, ding, ding. Easy as that. Ding, ding, ding. Well, thank you yes, for joining Molly, us, Molly. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much for having me. Um, and, you know, keep the questions coming. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Bye. Bye. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club.